Hello, everybody. Um, if you're visiting, uh, my name is Joel, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Gospel Tab. I hope I have the chance to meet you eventually. So today, we are continuing on in our series on the Scripture. Uh, we're spending a few weeks talking about the Bible from the Bible. So today, uh, you can turn in your Bibles if you have them or get on your device. Uh, it will also be on the screen behind me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. We're just going to be in one passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I've been saying the last few weeks, I'm doing a different kind of preaching because I'm uh, teaching not just with uh, you in mind who are sitting in front of me today, uh, but also our network leaders. Um, some of these teachings are going to be recorded and released to the network in different ways. If you look on the wall out in the foyer of the Crestmont campus here, um, you will see these values. And you can look on our website and see our statement on each one of those words that's up on that wall. And uh, we are taking some time, at least, um, at least when I'm here teaching you, there's about 15 of us here at the Gospel Tab who uh, teach from the Word of God on Sunday mornings. But at least when I'm here with you, we're going to be talking about some of those values because we believe these are the foundational things, not just for the Gospel Tab, but also for the Greenhouse Network. If you're new, you may be unaware uh, that we are part of a network a growing network of nonprofit organizations, businesses, churches, um, and missional communities, essentially small gatherings and homes that are multiplying and doing mission. So the Gospel Tab is kind of just a sliver of that. Um, but throughout the week, we are serving in that network, uh, seeing God multiply that network. Um, we're on mission in that network. And uh, there's a lot of people who gather in one of those 25 places um, who might never pass through our doors here on Sunday morning, but they're very much part of our family on mission. Um, so that's some of what I'm doing. I want to thank you if you've listened in the last few weeks, whether online or here in person. I want to thank you for being patient with me as I try to articulate to you from the scriptures our value for the scriptures. Um, I was thinking this morning, there's some sense in which these few teachings that I've done are a little bit different than anything I've done the last 16 years I've been on staff here at the Gospel Tab. So that's meaning I'm staying a little bit closer to my notes than I normally do because um, I'm trying to be um, careful and precise in my language, but I'm also trusting that the Holy Spirit is using this and filling in the gaps. That's a wonderful thing in ministry, right? <laughs> We're like trusting him uh, to fill in the gaps. Um, but I thank you for your patience with me as we look at this together. Now, I started this out last week um, by uh, holding out some resources to you, and I want to do the same again today. Uh, three resources that have meant a lot to our network as we talk about being people of the Bible— um, the first is the Bible Project. You can just look them up online. The Bible Project, uh, they have developed some artful, well-done videos on different topics and scripture. Um, if you are teaching scripture somewhere in our network or you know, you're leading a missional community or you're leading a Bible study somewhere, they even have Bible study outlines that you can download and use if that's helpful for you. And I think a lot of people don't realize it, but there's the Bible Project on the website, but then there's an app that's called Read Scripture, and it inserts into a reading plan of Scripture the relevant videos from the Bible Project. 
So it's a great way to go deeper into the scriptures as you read it throughout a year. So I encourage you to get that app. Um, others in our network use the Mission 119 app. Um, it's similar, it's a reading plan and then there's teachings um, interspersed throughout it so you can go deeper into the scriptures. A lot of people have found that to be really helpful. And then there's actually a prayer resource we use called commonprayer.net. Many of us in the network use this. Um, there's an app you can get, but it's free on the website. Uh, the app costs a few bucks, but it's free on the website, commonprayer.net. And it's really a prayer resource, but it helps us to pray scripture, um, but also to, there's reading plans built into it. So throughout the year, you're kind of reading uh, portions of scripture that, that maybe are newer to you or you would be less likely to turn to. So we just want to hold out those three resources to you. And these are resources, resources not only for you to use, but in the places where you're leading or discipling people, these are resources that you can hold out in those spaces too. And I'm sure there's others, uh, but these are three that pop up oftentimes in our network. So I just want to hold those out to you. Okay, let's do a quick review of the last two weeks, what we have said so far about the scriptures. So two weeks ago, uh, we were exploring how Jesus is the word of God. Um, and then last week, we were kind of talking about what is the Bible, how is it put together, what's it made up of. Um, so let's just summarize what we've said over the last two weeks before we get into our teaching today. First of all, it says in our value statement on the Bible that Jesus is the word of God, so we love the Bible. We love the Bible for a reason. And it's because Jesus himself is the word of God. We've been saying all throughout this series that truth is a person. Truth is more than just a book. Um, truth is a person. Um, just to make this distinction, the Bible itself is not God. And that's an important distinction to make because people that make the Bible a God often end up missing God altogether. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. We looked at that scripture a couple weeks ago. Um, he said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, um, but they testify to me. Jesus is telling them, you've studied that book, but you've missed me, right? So the scriptures testify to the person who is truth, but they are themselves not God. However, that doesn't diminish the role of the scriptures for us. The Bible is so important to us because while it's possible to know the Bible and not really know Jesus, it is impossible to really know Jesus and not know and love the Bible. And it's because the Bible is Jesus's book. Jesus wrote this book. Um, it's the story through the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about today. Um, this is his story, the story that he inspired. Um, this is the story about him. Every page, every word from beginning to end testifies to the reality of him. So we can't claim to be a movement of people that's obsessed with Jesus and not also be hungry for this book, right? Because the Bible is Jesus's story. Um, I said last week that even though the Bible is Jesus' story, the Bible is an earthy book, too. And what I meant by this is that Jesus, uh, that the Holy Spirit revealed the scriptures um, through ordinary people. Um, and the ordinariness of them was not like set aside when the scriptures were revealed through them. So these people had cultures and languages. Uh, they had their own failings. But God used these very real people in very real times in history, in very real cultures, to reveal who he was and what he was doing in the world. So we're saying we understand the Bible better when we get into that backstory, right? 
We said last week that the Bible is written against the backdrop of all kinds of messy things, violence and oppression and poverty and patriarchy. And I would argue that the Bible doesn't endorse any of these things, but it is the backdrop against which the story plays out because God's story plays out in the midst of very messy people, right? And so the more we understand where those messy people were coming from and what their culture was like and what their language was like, the more we understand where God was showing up in the world. And I suggested last week that the more we learn to recognize where God was showing up in the world, in the history of the scriptures, it trains our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see where it is that he's showing up in the world today. We come to expect God to show up even in the very messy things of today, messy relationships, communities, in the midst of human sinfulness. And I suggested that there's two questions that, that reading and studying the scriptures kind of trains us to ask or to recognize what is God saying to me or better yet to us because we understand the scriptures better when we read and digest them together. And then what am I, what are we going to do about it? Um, the scriptures train us to ask these questions and then to recognize where what he was saying, what he was doing, and what people were called to in obedience, and then we're called to similar things in the day in which we live. Now, like I normally do, I may ask you to read some scripture out loud with me today. Um, I really like the portions of our service where we read scripture together and never want to lose that amongst the other things that we do um, in a worship gathering like this. So I love it when you read with me. So we're going to read in just a moment out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but let me give you some context first, right? Because the Bible's an earthy book. So Timothy is a real person with a culture and a real setting in history. And the more we understand some of what Paul was saying to him, the better we'll understand the few verses that we're going to read. So just so you understand who Timothy is, he's a protege of the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you don't know, the Apostle Paul was this persecutor of Christians, this religious leader who persecuted Christians until he encountered um, the resurrected Christ, and uh, his life was just turned upside down in the best possible way. And he ended up planting churches all around uh, the Roman world. And in the midst of doing that and starting these communities of faith, um, he ends up mentoring this young man named Timothy, who becomes one of the leaders of the early church. And we have two letters from Paul to his protege, Timothy. And these letters are filled with different practical instructions about the church, warnings, uh, things that Paul is concerned that he wants Timothy to know and understand and watch for, um, encouragement as this young man leads. So let me just give you some background in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul begins um, 1 Timothy 3 by warning Timothy that there are going to be terrible times in the last days. Now, when you see that phrase, the last days in the scriptures, it is talking about the period of human history in which we live. This, this, these are the last days. All of these hundreds of years since Jesus walked the earth are the last days until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. So we are living in the last days, and Paul warns that there will be terrible times. He describes why these times will be terrible. He warns Timothy of the disobedience of people in these days. When you hear a warning like that, it's easy to look at the world, isn't it? And think about the disobedience out there, you know, that we see happening in the news, or we see happening in our culture, or whatever. 
but Paul isn't just talking about the disobedience out there. He's talking about the disobedience that will be present in the church in the last days. Um, particularly, he talks about how in the last days there will be churches that have a form of godliness without power. Imagine that, that this is part of the disobedience of the last days, is that there will be f powerless forms of Christianity, powerless forms of religion. Um, it really is foreign to the Gospels and to the book of Acts, but Paul warns against it. Um, as he warns Timothy about this, he warns of false teachers, not just people out there, but false teachers who will make their way into the relationships and fabric of the church. And Paul wants to remind Timothy of what he taught him. I love how Paul words this in 1 Timothy 3 because he's rooting it in relationship. He's telling Paul, you know, he's telling Timothy, you know me. Uh, you've seen my suffering. You've seen my ministry. Remember our relationship and remember what I taught you. And then from there, Paul goes on to describe the nature of Scripture to Timothy. And it's these verses that I want us to look at today. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 12. Could you read out loud with me? It will be on the screen. Let's read together. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have now become convinced of, because you know from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's these final verses here, which are verses 16 and 17, that we're really gonna focus in on. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want us to really dig into these words together for a few moments. And as we do, I want us to consider some pitfalls that we might experience as a family on mission as we study scripture together. Um, and some good practices as well. And I'm sure you could add to my list of pitfalls and good practices, but these were some of the things that I was reflecting on um, this last week. Please let this spur on conversation among you and the places where you serve and are studying scripture together with other people. First of all, let's start at the beginning of this verse. All scripture is God-breathed. Paul's saying that we believe all scripture, every single word of it, had its origin in God himself that he was the one who inspired this. And because it has its origin in God, it is a completely reliable and trustworthy revelation of what God is like. This is why, for the last couple weeks, we've been saying that all of Scripture is God's story about Jesus. It's Jesus' own story. If you want to know what God is like, look at the person of Jesus. And if we want to look at the person of Jesus, we have to know what he's like. And to know what he's like, we look at the entirety of Scripture, every single word of it. Um, I think there's some pitfalls in our own study of Scripture that can come when we don't value every word that's present in Jesus' story. First of all, uh, we might be tempted to read and interpret only certain portions of Scripture and not others. 
Um, I think there's a tendency for us to turn, I do it, to turn to some passages over and over and over again. That's not wrong. We all have the places that we're drawn to. But to never really take the time to digest or understand the places that we turn to um, maybe less often. And the reason that's an issue over time, not just for individuals, but for a community of people, is that it leaves us with an incomplete story. Every single person that's presented to us in the scriptures is part of Jesus' story. Every word in that book is part of Jesus' story. And so as long as certain portions are ignored, um, then we are missing out on part of the story of Jesus. And we want to be a people obsessed with Jesus. Um, we want to be obsessed with his story to understand to the, to the um, you know, greatest degree that we can who he is and how he's working in the world. Um, Here's another pitfall, to ignore the parts of Scripture that are hard to understand or make us uncomfortable. I think this is why we don't turn to certain portions of the book. There's parts that honestly are hard to understand, hard to digest, hard to understand what the meaning is, and maybe even more uncomfortable is not the parts we don't understand, but the parts that we do understand but just make us really uncomfortable, right? But I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we can't separate Jesus from his own story. I, I gave you an example a couple weeks ago um, that if you were to really know me, uh, you would need to come in close to my story. And that doesn't just mean the things that you might be most drawn to or the parts that are you know, easiest for you to digest about who I am or how I see the world. To really know me would mean that you come in close to the uncomfortable parts of my story too, to the parts that are hard to understand. It would mean that you lean in and ask questions instead of dismiss, right, the parts that are hard to understand. Well, this is true of Jesus. I love Jesus' story, but there are some hard edges to his story, right, in the Old and the New Testament. Um, that we're going to bump up against. Our emotions are going to bump up against. Um, and they can be uncomfortable to sit with. Um, but when we don't sit with them, we're missing something that Jesus wants to show us about who he is. I, I would argue that the discomfort that's sometimes present in our reading of scripture is actually designed by God to cause us to lean in, um, to cause us to be shaped at a deeper level. It's actually the harder parts that God often uses to shape us the most. Um, I think here's another pitfall, is to place central emphasis on the wrong part of the story, uh, which is to say anything other than Jesus. See, the whole story, from Genesis to Revelation, is centrally about Jesus. And we understand, we keep saying it, who God is best as we look at Christ. Here's a way that one theologian words this, that there is no unchristlikeness in God, right? There is no unchristlikeness in God. Um, and I think this affects how we read the scriptures. I think this happens in a lot of churches, a lot of Bible study groups, a lot of home groups. I think the story is told, but the emphasis is put on the wrong part of the story. This is one reason I like the Bible Project, um, because I think they're doing something wonderful in making the whole story about Jesus, because that's what the Bible is. Um, for instance, if every Sunday all I preached were the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, and some churches essentially do this, if all I preached were the Ten Commandments, I would be preaching something to you that is true, right? And it came from God, but I can't fully understand the meaning, the nature, the purpose of those commandments without understanding how it relates to the person of Jesus, Maybe here's a more common one. If every Sunday, and I think this happens in a lot of churches, Bible studies, home groups, if every Sunday I preach to you a story out of the Old Testament, 
and drew from it some kind of moral lesson for you and I to live by, I would probably be preaching something true but the emphasis would be on the wrong thing. We don't fully understand the meaning, the purpose of those stories in our lives if we don't understand how Jesus was working in that story, how it connects to the person of Jesus. And so whatever portion of scripture we're reading, we want to be putting the emphasis on that this is a story that somehow connects to the person of Jesus, right? But here's what I think a good practice is. It's to return to the whole book, every word, every chapter. I know it's a big book, so we'll do this for the rest of our lives. Return to the whole book with humility, admitting what we don't know, what we don't understand, curiosity, leaning in where we need to, to try to understand better, talking about it with other people, asking questions. I've encouraged you to put question marks in your Bible. And I would say this, whatever you don't understand or whatever is hard to sit with, don't let it create fear in you. Let it create wonder. If Jesus is Jesus, if he's God, it makes sense that we wouldn't understand everything about him, right? Let that create in you a sense of wonder, a sense of awe. Don't let it become something that makes uh, you feel afraid or turn back from the story. And so we return to this book again and again, understanding that every time we do, we're understanding more about who Jesus is and how he's working in the world. And I think if the emphasis is in the right place on the person of Jesus as we read our Bibles, it means that we will read all of it uh, let's take the Old Testament, for example. We don't just read the Old Testament as uh, like prophesying about Jesus, you know, all of the part of the scripture that happened before Jesus was born. Uh, I was taught this when I was young, to notice all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. It is an amazing study. So all these prophecies just littered throughout the Old Testament, they're pointing to Jesus. But I think for Jesus to be the central person of the whole book means that we don't just let the Old Testament look forward to Jesus. It means we actually look at the Old Testament through the lens of who we know Jesus to be in the New Testament, all right? Um, so we read every story. We read every instruction. We read every law through who we understand Jesus to be because Jesus is the clearest picture of God. Oh, God did, God revealed himself in amazing ways. He did amazing stuff at Mount Sinai. He did amazing stuff through the prophets in the Old Testament, but they are not as clear revelation as the person of Jesus himself, right? Truth is a person. So we understand what was happening back then by looking at who Jesus is. And if we end up with an interpretation of the Old Testament, for instance, that is nothing like what Jesus is, then we probably need to sit with it for longer, right? Because there is no unchristlikeness in God, right? Okay, let's go on in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3. Are you all good? Are you tracking with me? Okay. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. And this means that all scripture, every word, is useful for understanding doctrine. When I talk about doctrine, I'm just talking about what we know and understand about God, his nature, and how he works in the world. Scripture establishes for us the foundation of what we believe, doctrine. But I think there's some pitfalls. I, I'm saying it over and over again, kind of like a broken record, but I think if we do doctrine apart from Jesus, we'll end up with incorrect teaching, right? So if scripture is good for teaching, we always have to do it through the lens of who Jesus is. This is how we best understand God. There's another pitfall when we talk about doctrine is pitting one form of revelation against scripture, pitting other forms of revelation against scripture. Here's what I mean. The Bible is not the only place that God has revealed himself. Um, the Bible actually says this itself. 
So the Bible is not the only place that God has revealed himself. For instance, God has revealed himself in creation. When you watch a thunderstorm, you know, roll in, or you watch, um, you know, waves at the beach, there are things to be learned about God from those observations, right? Also, we're a church that welcomes the present-day ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit, so God can reveal himself in other ways. By his Spirit, he can give people dreams. Some of you have experienced that. He can speak through a word of prophecy. Some of you have experienced that. But if all revelation is from God and has unity in his character, then it makes no sense to pit one form of revelation against another. In other words, to say, uh, let's say one of you stood up in this gathering and said, I had a dream last night that Jesus is not the Christ, not the one sent from God. Would we receive that as being from the Holy Spirit? No, why? One reason among many is that it contradicts the written revelation that we have right, in the word of God, and if that was from the spirit, it would not contradict what the spirit has revealed to us in Jesus' story, right, about his identity. Um, once in a while, you know, and it's no surprise, this stuff happens, we just have to walk with people, but once in a while, we've had someone come around us who claims great prophetic ability, um, but kind of has a low view of scripture, um, that doesn't want to you know, spend time reading and understanding it. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak through such people because one thing I know about God, he just gives his stuff away, right? He just gives his stuff. I don't deserve any of it. He just gives his stuff away. It's amazing. But what I am saying is if someone's claiming to operate prophetically or they had a vision or a dream and I don't see in them a love for this book, there is a check in my spirit. And I would suggest to you there ought to be a check in yours as well, right? Because this is Jesus' story. And if we really love what Jesus is saying, why wouldn't we love what he says in the book, right? I'm not just going to love what he says in a dream or a prophetic word. I want to love every word that he says in this book if it really is about him and not just about me getting attention or looking powerful or so on and so forth, right? So we don't pit forms of revelation against Scripture. Um, I think another danger when we talk about teaching is to learn information without experiencing transformation. Um, Paul says in the passage that we read that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. Biblical wisdom, as, especially as the Jewish mind understood it, is not just like information about topics or having philosophy, you know, conversations about things that aren't practical. It, uh, biblical wisdom is intensely practical. It has to do with how we talk to each other, how we exist in relationship with each other. And so as we are people of the book, as we're people who love the Bible, this isn't just to gain information. As a matter of fact, Scripture warns that that itself can be a source of pride, that we can boast in what we know about Scripture, especially if we think we know more than other people. We want this to lead to transformation. Um, I think a good practice when it comes to the teaching of Scripture, if Scripture is useful for teaching, I think, and, and primarily teaching us about who God is, then I think there's two questions that are useful to ask of every text, and we've used them before in our times together. Number one, who is God? And particularly, I would say, who is God in light of who Jesus is, because Jesus is the clearest picture we have of God. And then, who am I? in light of who God is in Christ, because we best understand our own identity, our own purpose, in light of God's revelation about himself, because he is our creator. And I think we can ask this about every story in the Old Testament, every law in the Old Testament, every prophecy, every story we have in the New Testament, every bit of instruction. What is this passage telling me about who God is, in light of who Jesus is, and who am I, 
in light of who God is in Christ? I would suggest those questions are gonna lead us to transformation. Next, let's continue on in 1 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching and rebuking. Sometimes scripture has to tell us what is wrong in the world and in ourselves, and we need this because sometimes our own perceptions of what is right and what is wrong, particularly what God is like and what he isn't like, can be seriously warped. Um, I've read some the last year, these studies in psychology. There's actually all of these like scientific studies that have been done about just how messed up our perceptions of reality can be. If you start reading this stuff, it'll really like throw you for a loop. You hear what I mean? How messed up our memories can be, how messed up our version of events can be. And, and it's interesting because even though it can be so messed up, we tend to be really confident in our own perceptions, right? Especially if we disagree with the perceptions of other people. God knows this. And so sometimes as we come up against the hard parts of Jesus' story in the Bible, there's a rebuke, a rebuke of our perceptions, our emotions, our own desires. Um, I uh, uh, was talking, um, I already referenced this example a couple weeks ago about how if you were really to know me, um, you would need to hear all of the parts of my story, even the hard parts. Some of the hard parts of my story might correct some of the perception that you had about me, right? There might be a kind of like rebuke in that, but to really know me, you would have to enter into that space. Um, not only does Jesus' story have these hard parts that we are called to hear and sit with, um, his story is different than my story. Like if you were listening to my story, that's one thing. But his story is different than my story in a very significant way, and it's that we believe that his story is authoritative. See, my story isn't really authoritative for your life, is it? But Jesus claimed that he was king. Jesus claimed that he was the son of God. This is central to Jesus' own story in the scriptures was this radical claim of his own authority, of his central place in all of history, of his central place in the universe. So his story for you and for me is, is an authoritative story in a way that my story is not for you. And this means that we don't just read the Bible, but we let the Bible read us. We don't sit over the scriptures to study it and master it. We submit underneath them right? Um, we don't use the Bible. We let the Bible shape us, right? Um, there's a posture of humility and submission that we all take to the scriptures, and this means that it has the authority even to rebuke us. Now, here's some pitfalls, I think, as I think about this. I think one big pitfall as we study the Bible together is to think that our emotions, desires, and perceptions are always trustworthy, this is a big deal in our culture because we're kind of taught to believe that this is true, right? But the science doesn't even back it up. Neuroscience doesn't even back up that our perceptions are always correct, right? Um, the truth is that often in ways that we don't even fully understand or haven't fully reflected on, um, we have been shaped, our perceptions, desires, and emotions have been shaped by things that are not God, and we don't even realize it. For instance, our culture has shaped us in ways. And I'm not just talking about the you know, the space in society that we occupy, but consider this, church culture has shaped us. If you were raised in the church, I've met a lot of people who think that their church culture is what's reflected in the scriptures, right? Um, and sometimes we can't see it, right? Sometimes we can't see how our perception is wrong. Our own wounds, 
you know, that we've experienced um, shape our perceptions of things. Or consider this, that Scripture presents reality as us existing in this spiritual battle that we can't even see. Sometimes our perceptions, desires, and emotions are actually being shaped demonically in ways that we don't understand. And here's what's dangerous, especially in religious environments. And please pay attention to this if you are in a position or you're teaching the Scriptures. If we are looking for justification of our own perceptions, which I think many of us are, I do this, right? I want to think that I'm right, right? And you probably do too. Here's where this gets dangerous in religious environments. If I'm looking for justification that my perception of things is right and yours is wrong, in a religious environment, it's very easy for me to reach for God as justification for my perception to try to use him as some kind of justification for what I believe. I would say this, a community that cannot admit these dangers, whether it's the Gospel tab or anywhere in our network, a community that cannot recognize and admit that these dangers exist in our relationships is a community that has no capacity to be humble at all, right? Um, Listen, we say in our statement, you know, when we talk about the Bible, we actually say that we prefer leaders who model submission to the authority of the scriptures, right? And I would encourage you, wherever you're leading, wherever you're influencing in our network, trust more people who are submitting themselves, especially if they're leaders, trust more people who are submitting themselves to God's word, who are coming with you under the authority of what God is saying, who are themselves willing to be rebuked by what scripture says. I think another pitfall is trying to establish truth by only talking about our own emotions, desires, and perceptions. I'm not, listen, I'm not saying our desires, emotions, and perceptions are important. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna say more on that in a second. But I'm saying, if you and I are talking about what's right for us to do in ministry, or what's wrong for us in how we live our lives, and this cannot just be about what I think and about what you think, right? Um, there has to be a different kind of conversation that happens where we both come under the authority of Scripture and even allow Scripture to rebuke us if necessary. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? Because you know what? If we can't both be submitted to God's Word, you know what will happen? Whoever has most power in the relationship, their perception will win. This happens in churches all the time where the pastor's perception, because of his or her place in the church, their perception wins the day, right? Right? Um, that's not good leadership. That's not biblical leadership. Uh, what I want to do is say, hey, I'm with you in this under the authority of God's word. We both have to submit. We both have to talk about what the scriptures are saying and reach understanding in that place. Um, I think another pitfall as we talk about rebuke kind of on the other side of the coin is that we have to be careful that as we allow the scriptures to rebuke us that we're not using the Bible in abusive ways. Um, what do I mean when I'm talking about using the Bible in abusive ways? This is kind of the other side of the coin. Um, one thing that happens in religious environments all the time that I think is abusive is bypassing people's pain. Um, I think this is, I call it easy quotism, you know? This is where we use the Bible to give a simple answer to someone and we don't enter into their pain with them. We just quote a verse at them. Um, when people have their pain bypassed, when it's not acknowledged, when it's not entered into, that ends up being a very hurtful relationship. I think we've all known people who use the scriptures to control and manipulate, which is another way of bypassing the person to get them to do what you want. Um, that's not what scriptural rebuke is for. I think 
We can just rebuke the people that we think we're better than, or it's easy to rebuke the people who are different than us culturally or socioeconomically because we see their sins better than we see our own, right? Um, so we can use the scriptures to kind of get preachy at them. I don't think that's what scripture's talking about when it's talking about rebuking. I also see people make up rules about things that the scriptures don't speak to. Um, I've met these people before. Maybe you have too. They're like, I need a chapter and verse for that. Well, listen, listen, I, if there's a chapter and verse for that, I don't want to go against that chapter and verse. You feel me? But let me ask you this. When I picked out this shirt this morning, it's a new shirt, it's the first time I'm wearing it in front of you. When I, when I wore this, when I wore this, picked out this shirt this morning, when I bought it and then I got it out of my closet this morning, what chapter and verse did I refer to to put this on? Right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Diane brings up a good point. It's not that the Bible says nothing about how I dress in front of you. See, where we don't have chapter and verse, what's the law? The law is love, which is why I wore clothes today when I came here, all right? So it's not the scripture has nothing to say about this, but I find that people who want a chapter and verse for everything want to use that to rebuke everybody. Um, are often people who don't want to do the hard work of existing in a community of people who are trying to figure out how Scripture applies to us and what the Spirit of God is saying. You see what I'm saying? The truth is, there's a lot. Let me give you an even, forget my shirt, politics. I meet a lot of Christians who are convinced there's chapter and verse for what they believe in. Like, here's a spoiler alert. There is not a lot of chapter and verses for your political opinions. What there is, is there's a community of people. Now, there's places where there's true, there's chapter and verse, but what there is is a community of people who are trying to figure out how to be faithful with what God is doing in the world and how scripture applies to that. And another spoiler, we are not always going to agree on that because it's not as clear as we imagine. See, oftentimes we are convinced that our perceptions are true and the perceptions of other people aren't, all right? Here's what I think is the good practice is just to allow scripture's rebuke to cultivate a culture of humility among us where it's like none of us are better than anybody else. We're not gonna resort to power dynamics. We're not gonna resort to me trying to muscle my perception over your perception. We're not gonna try to win an argument. We're gonna come under the authority of scripture together and submit to it together and try to understand what God's saying. We prefer leaders who are submitted to scripture because we prefer humble leaders as a network. Okay, let's move on. I'm running out of time. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. I was thinking about this because the word for rebuke and the word for correct are two different Greek words in the scripture, but it seems like they're in the same um, category. They do have a different connotation, and I want to be careful with that because sometimes we're unsure of the connotation that's being used by the author. Um, But this word for correct has the connotation in the Greek of to stand someone up on two legs. Someone who wants to walk and needs help to pick up, be picked up and to stand on two legs. And so I wanna suggest that if rebuking is how scripture tells us what is wrong and untrustworthy in ourselves, like, okay, I can't trust my perceptions and feelings and desires all the time, then maybe correcting is how scripture redirects the seeds of things in us that might have become misguided. Um, Let me give you an example. I was thinking about my three-year-old daughter. Many, many nights when I'm making dinner in the kitchen, she comes in like 10 minutes before dinner and says, Daddy, I'm hungry, you know? And what she means by that is she wants a snack right now, right? Um, And she wants something sweet or she wants you. We're about to sit down for dinner, right? Um, 
how could I respond to her? Well, I could tell her that she shouldn't trust her stomach or her emotions, right? I could tell her her perceptions are wrong. You're not hungry, right? And I'm making this, this uh, example because I really think this is a lot of times how we approach discipleship in the church. Um, people come to us with a desire that's misguided, and what we tell them is that their perceptions are wrong, or they should just ignore that, or they should stuff that down. So whether it has to do with sex or money or ambition or relationships, um, the whole thrust of our disciple ends up being about people saying that those things aren't there. And the reason that's dangerous is because discipleship environments that are all about getting you to deny your humanity, including your very real human emotions, are religious environments that very easily become abusive environments. I could do something else with my daughter. I could acknowledge that her hunger is real, but as something that needs guided, as something that needs corrected. I can say, honey, you can wait. We're going to eat dinner in just a moment. This isn't just about getting her to stop doing something, which I think like we gotta do better at discipleship than just telling people to stop desiring things. We gotta do better than just telling people to stop doing things. Um, my daughter, I'm doing more than just telling her to stop. I'm not telling her to stop being hungry. Instead, oddly enough, I'm actually allowing her to feel hunger longer so that she can get to something better. It's correcting uh, her perceptions, emotions, and desires in a way that guides her not just to what she wants in the moment, but to what she really needs. And that's gonna have benefits, not just in this moment at dinner, where I'm making dinner and trying to get on the table. Hopefully that has benefits for the rest of her life, right? Where she learns to get to the real meal and not just the candy, right? Um, there's a training in desires that's going on. I'm not just telling her not to. I'm correcting. I'm helping her stand on two feet. Um, I ran across a quote I posted on Facebook. If you're friends with me on Facebook, a theologian I really like, Chris Green, um, he was answering the question, what is the difference between bad worship and good worship? This is so deep. Follow me for, this for a second. He says this. Oh, I just lost my notes. It's okay. He says this. Bad worship satisfies our cravings and makes us unaware of our hunger. Good worship does not satisfy our cravings, but it awakens our hunger. We feed on God to starve our cravings. Um, I would say the same can be said about how we read the scriptures. What I'm saying is, if we read the scriptures just to deny our desires, if we read the scriptures just to numb our discomfort, and if that's how we present the scriptures to other people, then I would say that we are actually just redirecting our addictive tendencies towards the Bible, which is to say that we're making the Bible God, which is to say we're in danger of missing God altogether. I see this happen all the time in discipleship. For those of you who are walking beside people, many, many people after baptism just make religion their next addiction. Just make religion the next thing that numbs their desires. We have to do something deeper than that. With the scriptures, we can't hold out the scriptures like it's some pain pill that people can take and all their problems are going to go away, right? We actually want to hold out the scriptures in a way that says, oh, you're going to be hungry for 10 more minutes, you know? You actually might feel more hungry, but it's going to get you to the real meal, right? That will satisfy. Um, it's a different way of directing people. So I would say that while the scripture on one hand rebukes my perceptions, emotions, all of that, the other side of that coin is that scripture actually makes me aware of my desires for food, sex, relationships, wealth, power, ambition, and everything else. 
and then it corrects those desires. Um, by that, I mean that the scriptures make me pay attention to what I want, and then it shapes them in a way that ultimately, ultimately leads me to God. We want to lead people to a hunger that is so big that nothing like sex, wealth, ambition is ever going to fill it, right? We want to read scripture, teach scripture in a way that actually makes us hungrier and hungrier and hungrier, right? So here's the pitfalls. I got to wrap up so quick. Pitfalls are that thinking our emotions, desires, and perceptions are useless to God. Far from On one hand, they're not trustworthy. On the other hand, they're not useless either. Um, God is actually working in that stuff. He's actually shaping us in that place. It means that we can't read scripture in a way that numbs us, right? We won't read the scripture as some kind of pain pills, some kind of high, right? Um, I think there's a bunch of ways we do that. Sometimes we just read it to feel better, or we read it in ways that kill curiosity, or we read it only in the mode of rebuke. I, I think we want the scriptures to actually make us feel discontent in some ways, actually make us feel hungry. And by the way, it's the harder parts of the book that will do that. It's the harder parts of the book that will shape that in us. Um, I think the good practices are to notice how the Bible is so honest about our desires and let it work and shape those things and to read scripture in ways that cultivate hunger for God and also good news for our desires. So if I want this thing and that thing is candy 10 minutes before a meal, then what is the good news of Jesus' story, right, to that desire? The good news is a much better meal than that candy is coming, right? Sometimes I still pick the candy. And so do you, all right? Um, two fantastic examples in the scripture, by the way. Jesus' disciples had desire for significance, and they were ambitious. Uh, they were always, they always wanted to be great. And I find it so interesting that Jesus did not rebuke their desire for greatness. He worked with it. He redefined it, right? He said to them, look, you're worried about where you sit at the table that's candy 10 minutes before a meal. Let me tell you what real greatness is. It's being significant in God's eyes for all of eternity, right? He actually worked with their, desi their desires. Recently, someone in our network did this so well. I'm not gonna get into the specifics of the story, but someone came to one of the leaders of our network in, in one of the 25 entities that's in our network, and they told their leader uh, something that they wanted to do that was just obviously a bad decision. It just was obviously not the right thing. And it could have been an opportunity just for a rebuke, but instead the leader said, you know what, I'm noticing what you're desiring in this decision you wanna make, and I wanna tell you, didn't use this language, but I wanna tell you that's candy 10 minutes before dinner. Pay attention to what you actually want because that's only gonna be met in God, right? Okay, someone's alarm is going off, I'm supposed to be done. All right. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Okay, let's wrap this up really quick. All scripture is God-breathing, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and for training in righteousness. Righteousness is not just some rules, but it's a way of being in the world as Jesus was in the world and is still in the world by his spirit. It's not just beliefs, but it's right action. If there's no unchristlikeness in God, and the Bible is Jesus' story, where Jesus shows us what God is like, then the Bible ought to teach us how to be like God in the world, right? Here's ultimately how we know that we're interpreting Scripture right. How do you know? How do you know that ultimately we're interpreting Scripture right? It's not by answering a doctrinal questionnaire. It's not by saying, I checked off the box, I believe all the right things about Jesus. Here's what it is. It's training in righteousness. It's that I'm actually like Jesus in the world. 
It's that if our reading of Scripture somehow makes us unchristlike, right, then we have missed the interpretation. Then we have failed to understand, right, what God is speaking. And so we enter into it more fully as we not only hear and understand the word in an intellectual, cognitive level, but as we do it together and we actually become like Jesus in the world. As a matter of fact, just as I close, who's closing, Steve? I would say that this is fundamentally what it means uh, to be people of the book. It means that God has called every single one of us, not just a pastor, God has called every single one of us to be interpreters. Um, Have you ever thought about this? Jesus wrote his story through eyewitnesses. He could have just written his autobiography, right? But instead, from beginning to end, he chose very normal people who testified. I think this says something about who we are in relation to God, right? That part of what, one of the reasons we read the scriptures to be trained in righteousness, equipped for every good work, one of the reasons we read the scriptures is because in our reading of them, we are interpreting God to each other. We are interpreting God to the world. We get to say to the world, this is what God is like. And don't just take our teaching for it, see it in our actions. See it in how we live together. See it in how we serve the neighborhood. See it in how we bless people. See it in how, whatever it is that God has called us to do. You can tell when a community has been shaped by the book, not by their knowledge, but by the way that they have become Jesus, right? In the communities to which they've been called. All right, thank you, friends. I love you.